0: Well, greetings and salutations everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and sent in questions. However, we normally don't have enough time to get around to all the questions that get sent in, but I want to make sure if you sent in those questions, you supported the channel, I want to make sure you don't have to wait too awful long to get those questions answered, so we gather them up and we address them here on companion videos. And by the way, if you'd like to send in a question to be read on the John Campus show or an upcoming companion video like this one, simply go down into the description of this video and you'll see a tip link. Click on that there or you can enter it in manually at www That's the wrong one, I'm sorry. at www.streamelements.com/movieblogtv slash tip you'll be getting your question read on a show if we deem your question appropriate to be used on our show and of course you'll be supporting our channel at the same time and all of us involved here at the john Campus show thank you guys so very much for your support all right guys that down let's not waste any time and get right to it we're going to start getting caught up here with harry poppins i love that name uh who writes in the upcoming Flash movie, over or under 69% that we get a scene of Ezra fighting Supergirl and winning the matchup by slow and soft choke slam. Oh no, I put my money on the over. Uh yeah, actually, that's pretty good. Uh, for those of you to know, he's obviously that's obviously a reference to Ezra Miller choking a girl and and taking her down to the ground. So, uh, man, I'll tell you what warner brothers would never have the balls to do that but hats off to them if they if they did if it was they kind of poke fun of themselves with that a little bit all right next up milo murphy writes sony has the rights to spider-man movies both live action and animated and disney has the rights to spider-man animated shows but who has the rights to make a live action spider-man show a live-action Spider-Man show, because I think that would be cool. Also, since Disney can use animated Spider-Man and TV shows, could they do what-if episodes that take place in Raimi and Webb's universes and show what happened after No Way Home, or would they need Sony's permission to do that? They would absolutely need Sony's permission to do that. Yeah, you can't use a story that belongs to another studio in your show unless you get their express permission. Now, as far as who has the rights to make a live-action Spider-Man show, I don't know. It's probably neither of them. My guess is neither of them. Uh, Marvel absolutely won't have the rights to do anything live-action Spider-Man as long as Sony has those rights. But i am got a feeling Sony wouldn't have the rights to do it either. So my guess, I mean, I don't know. I'm not privy to the contract. I haven't seen it. But my guess would probably be neither of them right now. All right. Jonathan writes, one of two. Okay. Here's the thing. There was nothing wrong with the tragedy of Macbeth. Directing was great, acting superb, story interesting, but the Shakespearean language, thy, thou, thee, I couldn't understand shit. I was getting frustrated, so I walked out. Couldn't follow along nor understand WTF, Any or understand anything anybody was saying. Shame, because everyone loves this movie. And hey, you know what, man? It is what it is, right? I, I think there's a lot of people who try to watch Shakespeare or read Shakespeare, and they're, it's just kind of like me with a with a, uh, a console remote control. Like, my brain is wired for mouse and keyboard, although I've got my PS5 now, I'm trying to get acclimated to a controller, but my b- brain's just not naturally wired that way. And for a lot of people, Shakespearean language is just doesn't click with a lot of people. So I would say don't feel bad for being frustrated. I mean, I would say... Try giving it a shot and really try to follow along if you can. But you know, if it just doesn't click for you, it just doesn't click for you. Personally, I could not believe how much I loved uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Had an absolutely great time with it. And uh, hey, man, at least you gave it a shot, brother. At least you gave it a shot. All right, next up. Will uh, Manahan writes, hey, John and crew. Thanks for the show. Well, thank you for being here. My love for film has reignited. Oh, thanks to the show, my love for film has reignited. So much so that I would like to learn to analyze slash rate a film when I see it. What is your process for doing so? And what criteria do you tend to look at? Thanks so much. Well, it's funny. We've been talking a lot about that in recent days about, you know, what? look, for me, everybody approaches art in different ways. There's no one right way. There's no one wrong way about how you, as an individual, approach art. So, what I'm about to tell you works for me, and that is, what kind of an experience do I have watching the film? Does it give me an experience, whether the the experience is joy or sadness? or thrills, or laughter, or fear and terror, or contemplation, or whatever it is, right? All different type movies are experiential events. Movies are made, art is made for us to experience them. And so every single movie you come across, like there's no set formula or set form of checkboxes, you need you should go into a movie and try to check out. Well, they said the word perplexed. Perplex is a very good word. And they said the word perplexed six times in the movie. That's a very good score on the checkbox. Now, nah. Every movie is unique, and therefore the experience it's going to deliver is unique for each individual that watches it. Because you can watch a comedy and not laugh very much, but the person that's sitting next to you may see the same comedy and be laughing their guts out. So each film is unique and each person watching the film is unique and so all of us have unique experiences with it. So for me personally, the way I kind of gauge a film is like I gauge the experience it gave me depending on whatever kind of experience it was trying to impart. You know, horror films try to impart one kind of thing. So forget formulas, forget checkboxes. What criteria should I analyze? Listen, man, for me, It's art, and art is meant to be experienced. And so for me, like when I walk out of Shang-Chi and I had an amazing experience and I'm shaking and I'm thrilled and I'm overwhelmed and whatever, that's one thing. When I walk out of the tragedy of Macbeth and I feel inspired and I feel like I felt the tragedy of it and the descent into madness of Macbeth and, you know, the betrayal and and I feel all of that and I walk out of that theater feeling that. For me, that's kind of... What I then try to communicate to my audience, when I, when I'm talking to my audience about a specific movie that I've watched, when I'm reviewing a movie I watched, all I'm really doing is communicating to the audience, my experience, right? And to me, it's all about that. It's all about the unique individual experience. And then I try to explain my experience in such a way that gives you an idea about what maybe you think your experience would be if you watch the same movie. But anyway, that's, that's just kind of my approach to it. Everybody will have a different approach, but that's kind of mine. Thanks for asking, man. All right, next up, Kevin R. writes, Finally saw no way home. Uh, Jesus, Defoe deserves an Oscar for this. I disagree. Anyway, the guy casually comes into the MCU and becomes the greatest MCU villain. I totally disagree about that. Uh, and the score was fantastic. Agree. Michael G. keeps outdoing himself. I'm telling you what, G. getting better and better. He really is. I have where I really started to like his stuff was in his JJ Abrams Star Trek. Like his Star Trek theme, not as iconic as the original, ba, 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 like the original classic Star Wars or Star Trek theme I should say, but his Star Trek theme for the JJ Abrams movies I think is fantastic. Anyway, he's really good. I think William Defoe William Defoe was great was absolutely great in Spider-Man No Way Home. Don't get me wrong. But it was also a very one-note character. Ha ah, ha, Peter, I am, I am chaos incarnate. Ha ha ha, I'm going to kill you. Ha 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 ha. I mean, it was, I mean and, and Willem Dafoe played it to a T, but he wasn't even my favorite villain in Spider-Man No Way Home. Like I thought as great as Willem Dafoe is, I thought Alfred Molina was even better in it. Because he brought a lot of other different levels. The character allowed him to bring a lot more different levels to it than the Goblin character allowed Willem Dafoe to do. So not only do I not think he was the best villain of the MCU. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Oh no, there he is! (laughs) Ha 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 ha! Anyway, I actually thought he wasn't even the best villain in that movie. I thought the best one was was probably Doc Ock, but but that's just me. But still, everybody in it was great. Defoe played it great. Melina played it great. Holland was great. I mean, it's just such an enjoyable film. All right, thanks for writing that in, Kevin. Next up, Fanimator writes, We know that your favorite movie of all time are Star Wars, the original trilogy. Absolutely. And that your favorite film is Return of the Jedi. On my Star Wars ranking, I have it at three. Uh, but what do you love so much about Episode Six? That's Return of the Jedi. Uh, my favorite film of all time is Ratatouille. Oh, I love Ratatouille. Ratatouille is so good. Patton Oswalt doing the voice of of Ratatouille. It's it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I love one of my favorite Pixar films. I love that film. Um, Return of the Jedi. It's I mean it's so much the rescue of the Sarlacc pit, the greatest space combat scene to this day, the greatest space combat scene in cinematic Hollywood history is in Return of the Jedi. That, that, as they're attacking the second Death Star, that entire, the choreography, if you will, of that entire space battle is still to this day the single best one. And the single best sequence in all of Star Wars ever is, the Emperor's Throne Room with the Emperor, Vader, and Luke. The dialogue, the conflict, the combat. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. I swallowed the wrong way. Sorry. Anyway, recovered now. Uh, all of that culminated in emotionally the most resonant sequence of scenes ever in the history of Star Wars. So all that kind of stuff. Not to mention the Ewoks. I mean, I, I did a whole video on Screw You, I love the Ewoks. A lot of people shit on the Ewoks. I am telling you, the Ewoks, all these cute, cuddly Ewoks, are you fucking out of your minds? I mean, a lot of you have heard me talk about this before, but let me say it again. A lot of people look at the Ewoks, right? Like some cute, cuddly, adorable little teddy bear things, and oh, they just had to put some cute little teddy bears in Star Wars and stuff like that. And hell no, you simply do not understand the Ewoks. Nor do you understand the juxtaposition that George Lucas was trying to make between the ideals of the industrialized world versus the natural world. That's kind of the, the allegory that he was setting up in that big conflict on the moon of Endor when the Ewoks worked alongside of the rebel forces against the Empire there. And here's the thing you got to understand about these Ewoks. These cute little adorable teddy bears, right? And again, some of you heard me talk about this before, but I'll lay it out again in case you haven't. Number 1, they will hunt you. Okay? These cute little teddy bears will hunt you in a variety of different ways, including laying traps for you, which is how they caught Lu Khan Chewy, you know, 3POR2. That's how they caught him. So, they will hunt you. And then what will they, they will do is they will tie you up alive. They, they won't show you the mercy of killing you. All right? The Ewoks will not show you the mercy of killing you. What they'll do is they'll tie you to some stakes and they will carry you back to their village. And you think, okay, well, this isn't so bad. They're just carrying back. No, no, no. See, the reason they kept you alive, and the reason they carried you back to their they carried you back to your village is because these little savages. Are they going to start a big fire? And then they are going to cook you alive. They're going to hang your body, which is tied up to that spit, and dangle you over flame as you scream in horror and torture and your screams of agony echo across the Andorian moon as your flesh... Burns from your bones, and you are helpless to do anything, begging for the merciful release of death. But the Ewoks do not kill you. They love the sounds of your screams. That's how they know the meat is going to be good. They hear you screaming in pain and agony and torture until finally that sweet release of death comes when your body simply cannot take it anymore, your organs fail, and you die mercifully. Then, once you're dead, they'll remove you from that fire, rip the flesh from your body, and eat you. They will eat you and consume you. And then they're still not done. No. Because then they will sever your heads, what's left of them, put them on spits, and play them as musical instruments to celebrate their carnage and their murder. They celebrate their murder in joyous song and dance under the moon and the treetops of Endor. Cute and adorable, my fucking Italian ass. These things are savage. And yes, if you are the Rebel Alliance and you're on the moon of Endor and you need some help against the Empire, well, guess what? These little merciless, savage, murderous, genocidal, maniac hunters are pretty good ones to have on your side. Anyway, screw y'all. I love the Ewoks and I think they are completely misunderstood and you need to put some damn respect on their names. You need to put some damn res- damn respect on the name of Ewok. Oh, Wicket's so cute. Wicket probably murdered a family of 12 last week. I want you to think about that. Now oh, look a little Wicket. Oh, Wicket so... Wicket probably murdered a family of 12 last week. Just for dessert and for shits and giggles. That's what Wicket did last week. Because guess what? You remember when Han and Luke were brought to the Ewok village, and then out comes Leia in that dress? You know where they got that dress from? Some woman they murdered and ate. Probably her family, too. And then they just had that dress laying around. Because the Ewoks ain't making human dresses sitting down doing their little nitty-nitties. No. Leia was wearing the clothes of a murdered and eaten woman. I want you to think about that. The next time you watch Return of the Jedi, I want that morbid thought to stick in your head. Whoever owned that dress probably had a family, probably had a husband, some children. Yeah, they're all gone. They're gone. They're somewhere in the digestive canals of those Ewoks' bellies. Because the Ewoks are so cute and adorable, aren't they? Anyway, a little bit of thing there. But yes, many, many reasons why Return of the Jedi is my favorite uh, of the Star Wars movies. Thank you for asking. All right, next up, uh, we move over to uh, McDavid Deserves Better, who writes, It is my 29th birthday. Happy birthday to you, McDavid. Uh, my gift to myself is to abandon the concept of hope with the Oilers. I accept that our purpose our purpose as Oil, oil fans is to suffer. Congrats in advance on tonight's Leafs win. Well, last I che- I don't know what the final score was. Last I checked, the Oilers were winning 2-1. to one. Anyway, uh, after wasting the best athlete on earth, it's peaceful to accept misery. I'm sorry, McDavid, but boo effing who? In my lifetime, your Edmonton Oilers have won five Stanley Cups. Okay, so you shut up. You shut up. In my lifetime, you've had Wayne Gretzky, you've had Yari Curry, you've had Marc Messier, you had Grant Fuhrer. Hell, you had Andy Moog as your backup goaltender, for heaven's sakes. You had Paul Coffey, you had four Stanley Cups. With Wayne Gretzky, he left, didn't matter. You'll want another Stanley Cup with Mark Messier as your captain. You know how many Stanley Cups the Toronto Maple Leafs have won in my lifetime? Goose egg. You know how many Stanley Cup finals the Toronto Maple Leafs have been to in my lifetime? Goose egg. So you're not going to get any sympathy from me, McDavid. You get no sympathy from me. None. Zero. Five Stanley Cups. Get out of here with that nonsense, but happy birthday to you, brother. All right, next up. Logan James Kyniston writes, With your current thoughts about uh, favorite slash best, what what about when it comes to other filmmaking aspects? For example, you say Daniel Day-Lewis is the best actor, yeah, easily, greatest of all time, but your favorite you often say is Russell Crowe. Has your mindset changed on that at all, too? Well, no, look, now you're talking about two different things, right? Because when it comes to like individual actors, like I'll say, yeah, like Russell Crowe is my favorite. I cheer for him because I mean there's things personally I like about him as a as a dude, right? So I'll root for him. But ask me who's the better who's the better actor between the two. Who do I who gives my favorite performances? All right. Well, Daniel Day Lewis is better. He he gives my favorite performances. Russell Crowe, I think, is one of the greatest actors in the world. But I really like the dude. So I, I kind of cheer for him in a lot of different ways. He was in some of my favorite movies. And so, yeah, I cheer for him. But it's a different thing we were talking about an individual person versus the art of an entire movie. So I kind of make a distinction between that, Logan. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, good question, though, man. All right, next up Logan James Kinderson also writes favorite slash best dilemma. Uh, my example is The Terminator. I see that the sequel is bigger, possibly better in terms of scale, story, special effects, characters, action. But personally, I prefer the small scale of the original making or of of the original making the original my favorite. That's not a dilemma. If the original film is your favorite, then to you, it is the better film. It's just that simple. Bigger isn't automatically better, wider scope isn't necessarily better. If to you those are better things, then you're going to have a better experience with that movie, and that one would be your favorite. That's, that's the thing it comes down to. It's like, well, this movie is my favorite, but I, I believe that other one was better. No, you don't, because if you actually thought the other one was better, then it would be your favorite. If this one is your favorite, that means this one is the one that worked best for you. This is the one you had the best experience with. This is the one that elicited that experience, those emotions, and whatever better. And so whatever you may say about the other film, it didn't do it nearly as well as this film did. So if this film is your favorite, then to you it's the best. And what is best to everybody will be different from film to film. So listen, I would say to you, man, if you're looking at the two Terminator movies and the first Terminator is your favorite out of the two of them, then to you that is the better film. If the other one was the better film, it would have elicited that ex- that experience out of you better, and it- that would be your favorite. But it wasn't. So that's kind of my take on it at any rate. Thanks for asking, man. All right, next up. Logan once again writes, I went down uh, old school Eddie Murphy Lane with 48 hours trading places, Beverly Hills Cop, and the Golden Child. Purge me. I must be purged. Purged. Everybody hates The Golden Child. I personally like The Golden Child. Anyway, uh, they all had so many racial and homophobic slurs, as did Eddie Murphy. I mean, you go back and watch Eddie Murphy Raw, man. Raw, delirious. Anyway, most of the racial slurs aimed at Eddie's character. Crazy what worked for in the 80s audience. Yeah, I mean, look, whenever you look at different eras, there are going to be aspects of individuals that we are not going to be comfortable with. But we also and it doesn't excuse it but we also got to understand that the environment of the culture at the time was different. And you know we we as individuals and we as a society we learn and grow as we go along. And as we learn and grow our scale for what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable starts to change. And yeah, you can sit back now and look back at the era of Eddie Murphy. I mean, there's no way Raw or Delirious g- can play today. I mean, if they just came out today, there's no way those those come out. Mm. But I think we know well enough to understand that at the time we still had a lot to learn as as a as a culture, as a pop culture, and Eddie Murphy was just a product of that at that time right? That doesn't excuse certain things, but I think we understand and we look through it through that lens. But you're right. There's a lot of things that were done at the time that you just couldn't do today. And I think you're right about that. All right. Next up, Dave XP writes, and he tips in like $20 as he's doing it. Thank you, Dave XP. Appreciate that, man, very much. Um, I enjoy the MCU movies and series as much as anyone. But, man, I'm really starting to miss those movies where the hero was the only thing super about their own universe. Syndrome syndrome was right. Uh, yeah, so Syndrome, for those of you who don't know what he's talking about, that's, of course, the villain in uh, the first Pixar Incredibles movie. Where he says, because once everybody's special... No one is. Listen, Dave XP, I have been saying this for years. That part of the great things about comic book movies is the idea of the fantastical within the mundane. Something out of this world, like an individual superpowers within the mundane, what I just call our, our regular frame of reference world. Just the regular old ordinary world. And this idea of the fantastical within that mundane It's something so special. and so cool. That's one of the things that made Superman, the original Christopher Reeve Superman, like the big ad campaign for Superman was, you'll believe a man can fly. The awe and wonder of the fantastical within the mundane. I remember watching the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. There weren't 15 superheroes on every street corner. Spider-Man was unique in the world. He was the fantastical within the mundane. You know, I I remember watching a movie like, you know, Batman or the Dark Knight or Batman Begins in the Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan one, right? There weren't 20 superheroes and and super vigilantes, right? No, it was Batman and Batman was unique in his universe. That Bruce Wayne was unique in his universe and it made it, there's something very special about that. And while I love the modern cinematic universe movies like the DCEU, like the MCU, and, and that kind of stuff, the, the reality is, though, the one of the drawbacks of these great things is that now the fantastical is the mundane. Ho-hum. Oh, there's another superpower being who can fly and shoots lasers from his eyes. Yeah, I saw six of them last week. Now, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe... It's just everyday ordinary life. It's just a world peppered with superheroes, and every 7-Eleven has six superheroes on its roof patrolling for crime. And there's nothing special about it anymore. Now, of course, look, I still love the like, Shang-Chi, Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still love them, but I'm just saying they lose part of the specialness of them when they when every single superhero movie has to be a part of an overpopulated superhero cinematic universe. And there's something we lose from that. And then when you think about those movies, Dave XP, I mean, just, it makes those ones even all the more special. But anyway, so yeah, I totally get where you're coming from, but everything has this trade-off, right? There's some great things about it. There's some not so great things about it. Anyway, thanks for writing that in, man. Next up, <coughs> Ryan Loner writes, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man turns 20 this year. Yep. Uh, and if you're having trouble believing that, the bone-saw fight does have a very uh, jarring reminder that it comes from the era when someone when calling someone gay was an insult with a guarantee, was a guaranteed crowd pleaser. We were just talking a minute ago with, with one of Logan's questions about, yep, if that is a sign of a different era, I mean, can you imagine today doing something that stupid? Like if Spider-Man no way home had one of the heroes saying that, I mean, if you have a villain, say it, whatever, cause he's supposed to be villain, but you have the, the superhero or, or one of the characters, one of the average characters saying that that would not fly today, nor should it. But it would not fly today. Again, a great example of a totally different uh, era. All right, next up. Chuck the Mystery writes, Hey John, one of two. So now that we know that Mortal Kombat was the most successful day and date HBO film, it brings back an old question. My second favorite film of 2021, Suicide Squad, came in third on HBO and bombed at the box office. So that implies that HBO wasn't the biggest problem with the failure. So do you think the biggest issue was? So what do you think the biggest issue was? As you had discussed, the baggage of the previous Suicide Squad mixed with pandemic issues. Or do you think that even though you and I loved Gun Style uh, for this IP... It just didn't work for the mainstream audience. I know DC wants to stay in the James Gunn business and have said that they would. But if Peacemaker doesn't fare well on HBO, can they justify letting him bring his style to another DC property? Thanks. All right, it's a good question. But look, there's a couple of things you have to understand when it comes to the whole day and date release thing. And I cannot remember, there was one of the big... Like mainstream film critics, and I'm trying to remember who it was off the top of my head, and I can't remember. It might have been the dude from the Boston Globe, but I. I... Anyway, the problem with the Dane Date isn't just that. Hey, if two million people watch it on streaming, that's two million less people going to buy tickets at the theater and generating tens of millions of dollars for you in box office revenue. That's not the only problem. The, the problem is, and Robert Meyer Burnett has kind of mentioned this before, too, and he articulated it pretty well, where knowing that it's coming out on TV on the same day makes that movie seem lesser than. In other words, like knowing Dune, I could run to the movie theater, see Dune, and you find out it's on the TV on the same day, suddenly doesn't feel like an event thing anymore. Dune suddenly doesn't feel like a big event thing. Now, Dune still managed to scrape out. An, an okay box office result for itself but suddenly that your movie seems again it seems like a secondhand thing it seems lesser than real movies play theatrically oh it's being released on the same day on television oh, okay i'll just watch it on tv at some point right so it's a combination of the direct financial consequences with the perceived hit in its i don't know in its legitimacy maybe that's the best word i can come up with right now so it's it's a combination of different things but listen we always said with suicide squad that there was it wasn't just one thing right we've always said it wasn't just the hbo thing it was a fact that it was a movie filled with characters that nobody had ever heard of which let's face it the bigger Generally speaking, the bigger superhero films are the ones that have the big names in it. Spider-Man, Captain America, Iron Man, right? I mean, not that you can't slip in a good one like Guardians of the Galaxy and what have you, but it was facing the idea of, number one, it was getting the same day and date release on HBO Max. Two, it was all these characters, comic book characters that nobody had ever heard of other than the three percenters who read the comic books. But 97% of the film going on had never heard of any of these characters other than maybe Harley Quinn. Third, it was R-rated, which always gives you a little bit of a knock. Not that you can't be successful if you're R-rated. Look at Deadpool. But a lot of R-rated ones do suffer from being R-rated. So one HBO Max, two unknown characters, three R-rated, four pandemic, which is there too, and then if four wasn't enough, then five. The fact that a lot of people did not like the first Suicide Squad and hearing the sui- another Suicide Squad movie didn't turn a lot of people on. So it wasn't just the HBO thing. It definitely wasn't just the HBO thing. It was a death. It was a scenario of death by a thousand cuts. You know what I mean? It was Death by a Thousand Cuts. And then on top of that, if you want to add a sixth element to it, that James Gunn's style is not for everybody. I mean, his style is definitely for me. I love James Gunn's work. Whether you're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy or Super or Slither or Suicide Squad, and I'm very interested in seeing what he does with this uh, Peacemaker series on HBO, which opens up soon. But, I mean, his style is absolutely for me. I love James Gunn's work. But it's not for everybody. So you might want to throw, you could throw that in as a sixth thing. There's six things right there, six hurdles that were working against Suicide Squad trying to get to the finish line. And and it flopped financially. It deserved much, much better. I thought it was a magnificent movie. Um, But, you know, it had a lot working against it. And the HBO thing was just one of those things. All right. Final question of the evening, guys. Uh, gets sent in to us by Daxus, who writes in, Hi, John. I'm not sure if you heard, but many outlets are reporting Disney lost $600 million. We talked about this on the John Campus show earlier today. That Disney lost $600 million due to pirating for Black Widow. Some say it is because of the home release for the movie. But what do you think? Did Premier Access play a role Thanks. So no, premier access absolutely played a role because here's the scenario. We, again, we talked about this on the John campus show earlier today. You can go back on the YouTube channel and and, and see where we talked about there, but here's where that 600 million is coming from. Disney did not lose 600 million. They lost a lot, but they did not lose 600 million to piracy. According to the report in deadline, the movie was pirated 20 million times. That $600 million figure is coming from a deadline, assuming that each one of those 20 million people who illegally downloaded Black Widow would have paid $30 to watch it on Disney Plus when it came out. Because remember, when it came out on Disney Plus, it wasn't free. You had to be a Disney Plus subscriber and you had to pay an additional $30 fee, right? So, this number of 600 million that's being bantied around out there, that's assuming that all 20 million of those people, number one, would have saw it, even if they had to pay for it. And number two, instead of going to the movie theaters to pay $10, they would have paid $30 to watch it on Disney Plus and sent $20 million multiplied by $30, $600 million. So look, you can you can make an argument and say Disney may have lost up to $600 million, but here's the reality. Number one, not everybody who illegally downloaded it would have gone out to watch Black Widow otherwise, right? So not all of them would have. Number two, even the ones who would have still watched it May not have paid the 30 bucks to watch it on Disney+, Plus, but rather done what real film fans do, which is buy a ticket to a movie theater, if that's an option that was available to them at the time, and go to the movie theater, which would have, in any case, only been $10 instead of 30 So the reality is, I think probably a more realistic number is that they probably lost in the neighborhood of $200 million. I think that's probably a more realistic number, which is still completely unacceptable, huge. I mean, $200 million. I, I Like, wrap your heads around that. That's the difference between a company being in business and a company being out of business. That's a huge amount of money. Now, in asking do I think the premier access had a role to play in that, of course it did. Because now, pirates weren't putting out these low-quality cell phone recordings in the movie theater of the movie. They were getting a full beautiful 4K signal on their Disney Plus, figuring out how to bypass all the DRMs, uh, the DRM, the digital right management, and creating perfect, beautiful 4K copies and sending it out to the world. It absolutely contributed to the amount of Ill- illegal downloads it had. So that's another challenge that they're gonna be facing. All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, Daxis, and that'll do it, guys. For this installment of the companion video, thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your evening. Don't forget, guys, the John Campia Show returns again tomorrow morning. It's going to be full house tomorrow with me, Kim, Ray, Robert Meyer, Burnett. We've already got a number of topics lined up. The room we're we'll talking about. We hope you come by and join us for that discussion there. And that'll do it for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name is John Campia, and until next time, my friends. Bye bye.